Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here, and today we're going to be using a slightly different format and style than maybe you've seen before. Today it's just my voice and the slides. Uh, I am on the road at the moment and just unable to be in my normal studio environment, but I really wanted to get you this presentation out. Episode 43, uh, lies, lies. The injuries are real. I'll let you fill in the blanks what the injuries are about, because you know, there's certain things I can and I can't talk about. So let's start here. There was a really incredible article that came out from the Hatchard Report. That's the HatchardReport.com. You can see the link down there below. Of course, as always, I put all the links out in the comments and description below this. This is a report that came out on December 17th, and it's the relationship between COVID-19 vaccination and all-cause mortality. Now, you know I like all-cause mortality. Why all-cause? Well, listen, first, the sum total of all the efforts of our public health authorities, whether those happen to be at the level of an island nation like New Zealand, which is where this report comes from, or whether it's at the country level like the United States, or it's continent level like Australia, or however you want to look at it, uh, it the really what the public health authorities ought to be doing is solving for the best overall outcome. And what's the best overall outcome? Well, if you said, look, we saved 10 people didn't die from COVID, but we lost 400 more, saving those 100 to, I don't know, fentanyl overdoses, you failed, right? So it's it's not that hard of an argument, and it should be very simple, and a simple thing to ask, which is, how are we doing at the all-cause level? And this is a really exceptional piece of work here because New Zealand gives us an extraordinary test case. I'll let Mr. Hatchard put it out in his own words. He writes here, and let me get my drawing tool out so we can go over this together. He writes here, this release presents the association between weekly vaccination totals and all-cause mortality in the 60-plus age cohort. So everybody over the age of 60, they just looked at it on a weekly basis. What happened when they were vaccinated and what happened to the all-cause mortality counts? He writes, continuing, quote, this has only been possible because of our unique situation in New Zealand. Protected at our borders, we have a very low incidence of covid and therefore, the short-term impact of vaccination on health can be reviewed in isolation from the confounding factors of COVID infections and deaths. So this is awesome because, listen, you know, did the whole idea of who died from what, you want, you have to remove variables. The, the more variables you can remove, the more certain you can become. And so New Zealand presents a really unique case because they were vaccinating heavily an entire population but because of their really very strong border protections, they didn't have COVID inside the country. So this is a really clean test. And so let's check it out and see what was found because uh, it's a really good, it's a, it's a real world experiment. Now, unfortunately, it comes up with some fairly troubling data. He writes, quote, this has been a painful release to write because it involves personal tragedies affecting families and loved ones some of whom are not actually aware of the causes of their loss or, in other cases, have been misled through preventable mistakes of government and civil servants. For some time, it has been clear that the rate of adverse events proximate, proximate meaning near or close to, to mRNA COVID vaccination is unprecedented throughout New Zealand vaccination history. Adverse effects reported to CARM are running at 30 times that of flu vaccines. It's also apparent that many 
of the adverse events are very serious indeed. MedSafe, which is the New Zealand equivalent of FDA, has continued to maintain that they are unable to determine which effects and deaths are related to vaccination. So it sounds like New Zealand has a very similar case to what we're seeing in Australia, Canada, UK, United States, a lot of Europe. Uh, Their health authority, particularly the one in charge of regulating the vaccine, is not terribly interested in gathering the data. And then you say, hey, look, I think we see a, a relationship here. And they go, oh, no, you can't see any relationship like that. You'd have to look into it. And then you might say, well, are you looking into it? And they say, oh, no, we haven't looked into it because there's no no evidence that there's any relationship. Circle, catch 22. It's how they roll. Um, this is MedSafe right here. MedSafe, uh, you can find it at medsafe.govt.nz. It's New Zealand Medicine and Medical Devices Safety Authority. And they do things like medicines, devices, compliance, things like that. All right, carrying on. Uh, In this uh, report, he writes here, quote, I have previously written about indications pointing to a causal relationship between a wide range of adverse effects and vaccination. Effects range from those already admitted, such as myocarditis, to others recognized in a leaked Pfizer document dated April 30th, 2021, including respiratory illness, internal bleeding, kidney and liver disease, neurological disease, thrombotic events, including stroke, immune suppression, and many more. This is not an exhaustive list. Now, end quote. Something that's really odd to me is to see kidney and liver disease showing up for a respiratory virus. This is a very odd thing. Or a, as a consequence of a vaccine meant to address a respiratory virus, seeing kidney and liver disease, really weird. Mm, neurological disease, really weird. Internal bleeding and thrombotic events, kind of weird. Immune suppression, mm, that's kind of one of the things you have to look out for in vaccine development. So this is a, a very odd list right here, but he just raises it as a, as a way to begin this. And by the way, here's the approach he took, which I, I just thought was great. Speaking as a scientist, he writes here, the first evidential alert to causality is always temporal association. Okay, that's very carefully worded. Let me uh, unpack that for all of us. Speaking of scientists, the first evidential alert, so the first thing you're like, oh, I think I've got some some evidence here to causality. That is, oh, this thing that just happened, it might have been caused by this other thing, right? Somebody pulled the trigger. There was a loud noise. Now there's blood on that person's chest. Because of the temporal association of those events, you might say, "Mm, there's possibly a causal connection between that blood and that loud noise that just happened over there. Whereas if somebody pulled the trigger and five hours later, blood suddenly appeared on that person's chest, you might say, hmm, the, the timing's wrong here. It, I'm, you know, much harder to make the causal link there and it may not exist. So the first evidential alert to causality is always temporal association. That's a good way, that's a good place to start. He writes, continuing quote of necessity, association should prompt further investigation. So if you have that temporal association, that's where you want to begin. That That's the first place you go, oh, there might be something to this, right? Oh, I just filled my car up with what I thought was gasoline. And a half mile later, the car engine is sputtering and has now stopped. You might go back and check what you just did there. Did Oops, did you use the diesel pump in a gasoline car? Hey, it can happen, right? So again, the, that first place you want to start your investigation is whenever you find a temporal 
association. Now, what's interesting is he 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 went through all the proper channels in this, uh, wrote to the head of this MedSafe thing right here, which is a Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, who editorially, if the office is ever looking to recast characters, I think I think he'd be a shoe in for the Toby character. Just I'm just going by looks. Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, here's what does he have to say. Um, this uh, The Hatchet Report wrote, says, On 28th October, I wrote to Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, pointing to the unusually high level of adverse effects and requesting that reporting of adverse effects should be mandatory rather than voluntary. Well, of course they should be. When you have a brand new drug that your own country didn't even make, that's shipped in in a lot of secrecy where you can't even see the base data that's going behind it, and you know it's experimental. Everybody knows it was experimental. Well, what do you do with an experimental compound? Very simply, you want to track all the data really, really carefully because there's going to be things you're going to learn, maybe positive things, maybe negative things. It's an experiment, but things are only experiments if you remember to collect the data. Otherwise, they're not actually experiments. So at any rate, it should have been mandatory, the collecting of these adverse effects. Absolutely. In fact, maybe it should have been mandatory to collect all sorts of effects, right? We would want lots and lots of data. Maybe these shots cure cancer. How would you know? Well, you'd have to collect a lot of data to find out. So this is something that should probably always happen with any experimental medicine. And even one that goes through the quote-unquote full approval process, even when it's on the market, you want to do a lot of sentinel recording and reporting. You just want to see what's going on out there. All right. Yesterday, he writes here, continuing on, quote, yesterday, December 17th, I received a tardy reply from Astrid Korneef, director of the National Immunization Program, writing on behalf of Dr. Ashley Bloomfield. So I didn't hear directly from Ashley himself, but from somebody writing on his behalf, Astrid Korneef. Writing here, quote, in this, Astrid specifically rejects my request, saying, quote, an accurate measurement of all adverse events is not required. Cue scratchy record sound. Like that. <laughs> Whoa, say what? An accurate measurement of all adverse events is not required. Okay, I got to let's parse that. What do you mean by accurate measurement? And uh, we only need a sample. How big should that sample be? And, and how would we know we're getting a statistically valid sample or we're even getting an unbiased sample? I, I could understand why you don't need actually to accurately measure all adverse events to find out if you have a safety signal. But this is very dismissive, just saying, oh, no, no, we don't have to measure this stuff. Um, not required. Uh, and further suggested, I can find myself to trusting Ministry of Health websites rather than public domain sources, her letter offered this view of the determination of causal relationships. Quote, we are aware of reports circulating in social media where an adverse event has a temporal association with a vaccination. This is not indicative of a causal relationship to the vaccine. Causal relationships between adverse events and the vaccine are established through robust pharmacovigilance examinations that take into consideration global reporting of the adverse event, the background rate for the condition, and safety signal analysis. Okay, true, but only if you actually do that. Uh, but there's a second exception here, which is actually this is false. It, it's not true that you can only establish a relationship between an adverse event by doing robust pharmacovigilance examinations 
global reporting, adverse events, and background race. It's, it's actually not true. In fact, having that first temporal relationship can be sufficient to give you an actual causation, and here's why. When this gentleman in the Hatchard Report took two things on this left axis right here, is total vaccine doses. You can see it's going from 35,000 to 70,000, 105,340. Um, and on this axis is total deaths of all causes from uh, those in the 60 plus crowd. So in red is vaccine doses here, and then these are all cause deaths marching up here. Pretty easy to see what he is describing here as, quote, the temporal association between all-cause deaths and vaccinations for the 60-plus age cohort during the rollout of the mRNA vaccine in New Zealand between the beginning of March 2021 to the end of October 2021 is graphically rather obvious even to a layperson. Yeah, pretty. Think so? Hmm. Wonder what it could be. Uh, by the way, again, there's no covid confounding this particular chart. So we'd have to come up with some other explanation besides the one that's just staring us right in the face here for why there was a big old lump of 60 plus total adverse event, sorry, total excess deaths, um, all cause deaths there that coincided pretty night tightly with the vaccinations. He writes in continuing here, quote, as weekly vaccination numbers rise to a peak, deaths peak. As vaccin vaccination numbers begin to fall, deaths also fall. The number of excess deaths in the weeks following vaccination is consistent with reports of 670 suspicious deaths proximate to vaccination submitted voluntarily to the New Zealand Health Forum. And it could actually be larger, end quote. Why larger? Because underreporting is not just possible, it's actually encouraged in these systems. It's encouraged in the United States to underreport these things. I know families that have tried like crazy to have their own family member's death be put into the US system, which is the VAR system. No luck, doctor, no enter it, won't do it. Um, because the doctor doesn't wanna get in trouble because if the doctor enters it, somebody's gonna come knocking on their door and say, why'd you enter this? There's a really strong push to not put these things in the US system. I've heard Maybe it's not as strong, maybe it's stronger. I don't know how strong it is, but I've heard the same sort of resistance to getting full reporting exists in the New Zealand system. So I'm comfortable saying whatever you see in the New Zealand system is an underreport of what probably actually happened. Uh, that's a pretty typical thing for the yellow card system in the UK, the VAR system in the US, MedSafe down here in New Zealand, etc. So I don't know, that looks pretty clear to me. And it's cool, if you can use that term, it's cool in, in New Zealand because there's no COVID confounding this. There's no way of saying, oh, you don't know, Chris, that rise in deaths could be due to COVID. I can say, actually, I do know. It's not due to that. Um, it's due to something else. And it correlates really, really strongly in a temporal fashion with the administration of vaccines. So, that's pretty strong. And in normal days, this would be solid temporal scientific evidence that you would be able to use as a strong starting point for the rest of the things that I agree with. Once you have this, then go in there and establish robust pharmacovigilance examinations. Look at global reporting. Look at the background rates for the conditions. Start digging in there. Maybe do some autopsies. Um, take blood work. You know, get some data. None of that's really happening because, again, for whatever reason, the health authorities are not interested in finding out 
the truth. And speaking of truth, I got to talk to you about uh, trickle truthing. We're undergoing quite a bit of it right now in relationships. Um, trickle truth is a term refers to this quote facts that are gradually and reluctantly admitted by one significant other under questioning, especially about having been unfaithful. Uh, they might say, oh, yeah, no, I, I just saw them for coffee. And then later they'll say, oh, coffee plus we held hands. And then much later after suspicions rise, oh, yeah, there was a, a peck on the cheek. Um, oh, yeah, no, it was actually on the lips um, and on and on. And so over time, the trickle truth is designed to sort of blunt the impact of the truth, which is maybe they just went home and slept with that person, right? All right, so here's our trickle truth moment of the day. Uh, this is from Reuters, and you know Reuters. Reuters is um, is uh, heavily conflicted because their CEO serves on the board of Pfizer. And the Reuters fact checkers, as Dave Collum says, if you believe the Reuters fact checkers, you are a special kind of stupid. Quote, that's from Dave Collum. Why? Because Reuters fact checkers are opinion checkers, loose fact checkers. We don't know who they are. They get it wrong all the time. They've been horrible at it and very, very one-sided. It's not like coin flip. They got it wrong 50% of the time. They're just bad fact checkers. In fact, they are biased fact checkers. So they're not actually fact checkers when you have a bias like that. At any rate, what are they trickle-truthing us today? They say here, Israeli study shows fourth shot of COVID-19 vaccine less effective on Omicron. This is coming to us from January 17th. Not that surprising to anybody watching this, I'm sure. So let's look at the article. In yellow up top, quote, it says a fourth shot of COVID-19 vaccine boosts antibodies to even higher levels than the third jab, but it's not enough to prevent Omicron infections, according to a preliminary study in Israel. Uh, okay, um, so it yeah, the third jab provided antibodies. The fourth provides even higher levels, but even not that many more. Uh, just a, just where you see we're asymptoting. We're we're getting less bang for our buck. Uh, we're getting you know more and more and more jabs in there, and less and less and less of a response. Which surprise, uh, people like Gear Vandenbosch told us that was how this would work a year ago or more. So this isn't actually surprising data. It's only surprising that we had to run a study to discover it. At any rate, continuing the quote here, they say Israel's Sheba Medical Center has given second booster shots. So they've had the two priming shots or what used to be called fully vaccinated plus a booster, which would be the third plus a second booster, which is the fourth. So when they say second booster shot, they're talking about the fourth jab. They've given the second booster shots in a trial among its staff and is studying the effect of the Pfizer booster in 154 people after two weeks and the Moderna booster in 120 people after one week. Not sure why they're looking at Moderna after only one week and Pfizer after two. A little unclear, but possibly because Moderna has a much, much, much stronger uh, vaccine or product, whatever we want to call this thing, because it has 100 micrograms of RNA in there as compared to 30 for the Pfizer all right, in green, continuing, quote, these were compared to a control group, air quotes, control group, that did not receive the fourth shot. So that means they did, your control group was people who received the third shot. Okay, all right, so they're comparing third groups to fourth shot groups. That's their control group. You know what would have been a super awesome control group? Totally unvaccinated people and people who'd had two jabs. Um, then we would have had some real controls. At any rate, their control group was uh, people who'd been triple jabbed. 
All right, at any rate, uh, those in the Moderna group had previously received three shots of Pfizer's vaccine, so it looks like Israel is now experimenting with Moderna, so they threw that into the mix because Israel was almost exclusively, or even was completely exclusively, a Pfizer jab country. So now they're trying out Moderna, and they're taking Moderna, and they're slapping it on top of the Pfizer vaccine. By the way, I am not aware of a single controlled study where they experiment the mixing and matching of these particular vaccines, but it's being tried all over the place. Desperate much? It's not good science, not good medicine, but uh, the experiment is being run. Let's hope they remember at least to collect the data because then it'll be an actual experiment. All right, uh, the vaccines they say here in white uh, led to an increase in the number of antibodies, even a little bit higher than what we had after the third dose, said Regev Yokei, quote in yellow, yet, this is probably not enough for the Omicron, she told reporters. We know by now that the level of antibodies needed to protect and not get infected from Omicron is probably too high for the vaccine, even if it's a good vaccine. All right, end quote. <laughs> even if it's a good vaccine. Hey, a uh, little tip here, Regev. Um, good vaccines work. So uh, just, just to find, just, I don't want to put too fine a point on that, but that's actually how it, how it is. Uh, a good vaccine would actually work. What we can say is these vaccines don't work against Omicron, but thank you for trying. They're trying, they're trying, they're trying more. Uh, what are they doing? They're going to give a third jab, a fourth jab. Sooner or later, they're going to go, you know, these things don't really work against Omicron, which was obvious to everybody months ago, but yet they try. Um, so the data is coming out and I were getting that trickle truth, which is uh, that these things just don't, these vaccines do not work against Omicron. By the way, Omicron works against Omicron really well and Omicron works against all the prior versions so far as we know so far. So it provides pretty good immunity. How durable that is, we don't know. Omicron has not been around long enough for us to really know that. But at any rate, let me amend that trickle truth headline for everyone. It now reads, Israeli study shows fourth shot of COVID vaccine less effective than Omicron. Because <laughs> I think that's what that's what I see in that data. Um, so just have a little fun with that headline. But yeah, we got to put that little change in right there. Um, what else can I tell you? Oh, well, time... Time magazine uh, came out with expert opinions. I had to put expert in quotes. You'll see why in a second. Uh, the headline is, no, you should not try to get Omicron. That's the headline. Reading from the article in yellow, quote, but actively trying to get infective isn't wise for anyone, experts say. Okay, who are these experts? I love experts. Quote, it's an unnecessary gamble for fully vaccinated people. And for those who aren't vaccinated, it's like playing Russian roulette with an automatic handgun, says Dr. Leolu Fianju, regional medical director for Oak Street Health in Ohio. All right. OK. Regional medical director. That's our expert. Russian roulette with an automatic handgun. <laughs> <laughs> that means, obviously, with an automatic handgun, there's always a bullet in the chamber. So if you do that, you're just going to shoot yourself and you're going to die. So Dr. Leolu Fayanju, regional medical director for Oak Street in Ohio, his expert opinion is um, you're going to die for sure if you get infected with the Omicron if you're unvaccinated. Hold that thought for a minute. We'll show you some data next. Continuing on, quote, but even if Omicron is on the whole milder than other variants, it will still be catastrophic for some people. On January 3rd alone, more than 1,400 people in the U.S. died from COVID-19 and more than 100,000 were hospitalized with the virus. 
Oh my goodness. We're still here. Can you see how we're still here in this story? Let's pick that apart. Two things. 1,400 people died from COVID, they said. Well, now was that from or with? And was that with this variant? Or were they still on ventilators for three months from a prior variant? Did any of these people receive early treatments that we know they should have, but probably didn't? Did they go to the hospital and get slammed on remdesivir and a ventilator right away because that's state-of-the-art care, you know, at maybe a regional health center in Ohio? Um, In other words, were they um, helped along towards the pearly gates by really bad substandard medical practices? Uh, We'd need to know that before we could say how true that 1,400 people statistic is. And then the next one, 100,000 people were hospitalized with the virus. Even the CDC and Fauci have started to parse that out and said, with, with is not helpful. Are they there because of the virus or with the virus? So here we see Time Magazine trotting it out saying, no, you should not try to get Omicron. That's the expert opinion. Interesting expert they had to find there to to support that. Meanwhile, non-expert opinions are very much that Omicron variant encourages some which include, by which they mean almost everybody, to drop COVID-19 precautions despite the risks. Hyperinfectiousness and low disease severity convince some of diminished danger. Health experts say risks remain. Here's that expert thing again. Let's look into this article. Pretty cool. January 17th, Wall Street Journal by Renee and uh, Sumathi here in yellow up top. Quote, Omicron's ubiquity and reduced severity are encouraging some people to drop pandemic precautions, decisions that public health experts say present new risks for people at risk of severe COVID-19 outcomes. Well, okay, they're parsing it a little bit here. So public health experts say present new risks for people at risk of severe COVID-19 outcomes. Okay, at least we're at that part. At least the Wall Street Journal's made that nod in the opening paragraph. Thank you, WSJ, for doing that because some people are at risk for severe COVID-19 outcomes. So maybe those people should be more careful. They should take extra precautions. They ought to be protected. Maybe they should be triple jabbed or quadruple jabbed, or maybe they ought to have access to the earliest of the early treatments. Absolutely. So there's a lot of things we could do there, but let's see what happens when they continue on in green. Quote, people, including those who got vaccinated and boosted and curtailed their activities for months, are letting their guard down in the face of a variant that appears to be infecting everyone, but causing largely mild illness. Hmm. But that largely mild illness, that might get people to drop their guard because <laughs> guess what? We don't care about mild illnesses. In purple at the bottom, quote, this is a dangerous way of thinking, doctors and scientists say dangerous. Omicron still poses risks to more vulnerable people, including the elderly, immunocompromised, and those with underlying health conditions. Uh, Okay, so it's true, but not everybody's elderly, vulnerable, or immunocompromised. And the people who are those things, they probably know that. I think the experts don't think people know that. They're just wandering around old, immunocompromised, and vulnerable, and they don't know that. Somehow that's escaped their attention. They're just like, didn't, didn't, didn't look in the mirror this year. You know, it just weren't tracking that. Um, (laughs) So again, uh, I got to make light of this because it's just silly at this point in time. Um, It's absolutely the case that uh, Omicron is vastly, vastly less dangerous. Even the CDC had to recognize that. Here's the CDC. Here's Rochelle Walensky, who I have just absolutely no respect for at this point. And I've lost all respect for the CDC. And by the way, if there are any CDC whistleblowers listening to this, 
just ping me. Um, you can get me at C Martinson, you know, over there um, and uh, on Twitter, or just reach out or find me somehow. Just let me know you want to slip me something. I'll get you a, a secure email. You can send me things to. It'd be awesome. But at any rate, that's assuming there's anybody left with integrity at the CDC. Hard, hard to imagine there is. But she writes even here, according to a new study that had come out at Kaiser Permanente in Southern California, 53% less risk of symptomatic hospitalization with Omicron, 74% less risk of ICU admission, 91% less risk of death, zero Omicron patients required mechanical ventilation. This is a vastly different beast. And by the way, uh, those are of people who actually are presenting to the medical system with a proper case. Omicron sweeps through so wildly that on an infection, morbidity or fatality rate, we would find, excuse me, we would find uh, that these numbers are even more dramatically reduced compared to Delta um, because so many dramatically more people have been infected because of how fast Omicron sweeps through. All right, uh, a lot of awkward questions are showing up here. Then this is my last slide closing up with this. So <laughs> in Slate, they're writing, so you're triple vaxxed still got COVID. Now what? And this person did, uh, who wrote this article. They're just like, ah, oh, this is awkward. And I don't know. And, you know, of course, a little buyer's remorse or jabber's remorse, uh, regret there. Just thinking, ah, this didn't work out quite the way I was hoping and feeling a little lied to. Rod Dreher, who I... Um, who I just interviewed, great interview. You might want to check out the Rod Dreher uh, uh, interview that I just did. Fantastic. What a guy. I really like this guy. Writing in his tweet here, he said, day six of COVID, now my wife and kids have it too. All of us faxed. Wife and I both boosted not long ago. Everybody we know who has Omicron was vaxxed. Most also boosted. Repeat that. Everybody we know who has Omicron was vaxxed. Most also boosted. So I got to ask, what's the point of the vaccine passports now? Security theater, prepping social credit system. By the way, this really blew up. Look at that, 111,000 likes, 28,000 retweets, 6.8 thousand comments. Unbelievable. Um, so Rod really struck lightning with that one. But you got to ask, I mean, this is it. This is the awkward questions. You got to ask that. Like, what is the point now of the vaccine mandates? Obviously. It's the case that the narrative around the vaccines is totally shredded. They can't even give it up, though. They're like, well, I don't know. Maybe we should, um, let's see, uh, this one. Yeah, I don't know. Let, let's just give people, it. I know the first two jabs didn't work. The third didn't work. Let's try four. It's like, dude, they're not working. Omicron shredded your jab uh, hypothesis. So they don't work um, against Omicron. And by the way, Omicron ain't all that deadly. And so you got to ask the awkward questions, which is like, well, now that we know that narrative is, is totally busted now, what's the point? Is it security theater? Is it prepping us for some social credit system? Is it what's the agenda? So here's the deal. The narrative is broken. The agenda is rolling along. Austria, going to force vaccinate everybody. Australia, totally insane. You know, they have at the Australian Open. They kicked out um, Novak Djokovic. And can't come in here. And they had a ball boy just keel over on the court the other day in 70 degree temperatures. I don't think it was heat stroke, right? So the narrative is broken, but the agenda rolls on. And so it's time for us to rise up and to absolutely break this narrative. Thanks so much for listening to this. Remember, we have this incredible, um, let me see if I can find this here. Yeah. 
Uh, we have this incredible event coming up. This is our annual seminar. It's going to be really important this year. We are talking specifically about the agenda, what the agenda is. Brett Weinstein is going to tell us all about it, how you can evade the agenda. Ben Swan's got an incredible thing. Royce White, incredible uh, framing for this. We're also got George Gammon. We're going to be talking about the economic side of this. I don't know if you've been seeing, but the markets are looking like they're ready to creak and, and fall over. Oil is shooting up. Stocks are falling, uh, interest rates are spiking. What does all of that mean? Anyway, the point of this whole annual seminar is to get you ready to thrive in the next year. So this is really getting you ready. This is the year in preview. We had Dave Collins' year in review. Now we're doing our year in preview. So you have the data and information and context you need to make a plan. Also, you get to meet people. So this is an extraordinary virtual event where we've opened up a bunch of rooms where you get to meet each other, come to peak2022.events, and you can find out more about that and get a ticket and would love to see you there. So we've got a bunch of people showing up. It's so far fantastically attended. So we're happy as can be with this uh, seminar event. It's going to be great. Hope to see you there. Hey, thanks so much for listening today. Uh, you get my smiling mug again back next time. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Doctor, so good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us again. Happy New Year. And we are now in the middle of the, I guess I guess it's fair to say we're in the middle of the Omicron wave. And we are hearing now from world leaders at the start of this new year that it's more important than ever. We need to make sure we get our kids vaccinated. But there are too many things that give parents like me questions and experts like you, you have unanswered questions about this. Tell us about your concern your, I mean, with with vaccinations, this latest strain and and children, you have described it as an unforgivable sin. Talk to us about this. Well, first of all, uh, Dana, thanks for uh, for having me uh, again. I'm uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, you're well again and that you you recovered well. And uh, so it's a nice opportunity also to talk to your audience. Well, uh, first of all, we uh, yes, I uh, said like many many other experts that uh, this uh, vaccination for children uh, there is absolutely no scientific rationale. This is really I mean there is no other word to describe this a complete a complete nonsense. Why is this? Well, first of all, the vaccination is not going to benefit the children because the, the, the children are naturally very well protected against, uh, against COVID. Again, COVID is an infection of children, like influenza is an infection of children, but it's not a childhood disease. And so there's a big difference between an infection and a disease. And the reason why it is not a disease in children is because the children have a very good innate immune system. That is an, an, a, a type or a part of the immune system that they got as a present at birth, that is present as of the very early days, uh, after birth. And uh, that is also the reason why uh, uh, children uh, almost never catch severe disease. Of course, they can get the illness, they can get mild illness. And more than at the beginning of the pandemic, we will most likely see with Omicron that uh, children can also get moderate, uh, moderate disease. But uh, what is wrong with being ill for a couple of days? What is wrong with being in your bed for a couple of days? I mean, that is not something which is abnormal. What is abnormal is contracting severe disease. 
you know, when you need to be hospitalized, etc. But these things don't happen with children. Of course, there are always exceptions. Uh, children with uh, genetic uh, deficiencies, for example, or children, unfortunately, some, uh, very few, uh, luckily enough, have underlying diseases. And, but otherwise, this is not a problem. And when the children get the disease, they recover and they will have then acquired immunity. So that is no longer than the innate immunity because when the virus breaks through the first line of immune offense, which is this innate immunity, then there is still an alarm bell. And that is the acquired immunity that will then take care of the virus and they will then get this acquired immunity, this protection basically for the rest of their life. So there is absolutely no advantage of vaccinating them. On the contrary, and that is the point because if it, it just wouldn't uh, be very beneficial, but it wouldn't do any harm, then you, we could still deal with it, I think. But we vaccinologists and independent experts, we cannot deal with it because there is really a very serious concern. And that is that this innate immunity, this innate antibodies that the children have to protect against coronavirus and influenza virus. And let me say, these innate antibodies are not going to protect them against all viruses or all diseases. Therefore, in certain cases, we need still the vaccines. But in this particular case of coronavirus influenza, these innate antibodies do protect. But, but, and here comes the point, the vaccinal antibodies, namely the, the antibodies that are induced by the vaccine, they can compete with these innate antibodies. You have to imagine you have the virus, the vaccinal antibodies can bind to the virus, even if they don't neutralize the virus anymore, like with uh, Omicron, for example, uh, antibodies can still bind. And the innate antibodies can also bind, but the mechanism of binding is different. The innate antibodies have lower affinity for the virus, so they can more easily be outcompeted by vaccinal antibodies. And that is the problem because when these innate antibodies get outcompeted, these innate antibodies play an important role in preventing autoimmune diseases. I am not going to explain the mechanism, but that is very well documented. So you can imagine if you suppress these antibodies, there is a higher risk, a higher likelihood that autoimmune diseases could occur. And basically, as you may know, autoimmune disease is the big horror and the big fear of any vaccinologist. On top, as I was telling you, these innate antibodies not only protect against coronavirus, against all the variants and all other coronaviruses, but also, for example, against influenza virus and probably also against a number of other viruses. So that means if you suppress them, you will also have a higher incidence of these other viral diseases in children. So I'll stop there, but you see that it's not just the fact that there is no beneficial effect for the children, but there is even a serious, a serious concern that this could really be very harmful for their health. This is valuable information. We're talking with Dr. Garrett Vanden Bosch, who's an expert on 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 human vaccinology. He's we we're talking about his long career. That's that's kind of a question that a lot of people have that you just addressed in terms of the performance of your innate antibodies and then what is induced by the vaccines because the question has always been will will one will will the will the vaccine will that inducement actually harm your body's own natural response and the the view that 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 I have been really developing and watching all of the dis- discussion about this is that 
our immune system. And as you said, you know, it's not unnatural for people to deal with, you know, a mild illness if you're in bed for a couple of days. But it seems as though the new trend, at least in science and medicine, if you read the headlines, is that that is abnormal and that we should do everything pharmaceutically possible to prevent anyone ever from being sick, even at the expense of the health of their own immune system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Dana, let me, let me tell you that uh, the problem is the innate immune system the quality of the innate immune system is directly related to the overall health status of, of somebody. So if you are in good shape, and we know what these parameters are, uh, you know, this has to do with nutrition, this has to do with lifestyle, this has to do with, you know, in general, physical, mental health, etc., etc. And then you will have a good innate immunity. That is the reason why even an 85-year-old uh, man or woman uh, who has no uh, overweight, for example, who is still doing, uh, you know, some little exercise, et cetera, et cetera, they are still, they can still rely on their innate immunity as well. But, and here comes the point, all the factors that contribute to you being in very good shape, in good health, and hence having very high, good quality of your innate immune system, all these factors that contribute to that, to that cannot be commercialized, right? Mm. Cannot be commercialized. And typically, vaccinologists, as soon as you start to vaccinate somebody, you are already playing with the acquired part of the immune system, the acquired immunity. And that is, of course, that is, of course, what vaccinologists uh, do. So, in fact, we are we are um, bypassing the innate immunity, right? And there is no attention paid to this. And it's like, okay, we we need to vaccinate because otherwise uh, people are going to die, people are going to get ill, etc. No, what can happen is that the innate immune system cannot take away all of the virus. That the virus can it, it takes away the majority of the viral load. But still, some viruses, uh, some viral particles can still break through that. But then, I mean, nature is fantastic. We still have, like, you know, the acquired immunity that can catch up and which is much better. We know that the naturally acquired immunity as a direct consequence of recovery from disease is much better than the acquired immunity that you're going to get by vaccination. So I, we can all explain this. but. That's a, yeah. a, a great point. We're talking with Dr. Garrett Van, Vandenbosch, and this was this was one that it, natural immunity is entirely disregarded at any point anymore. And I'm I'm mystified by the difference, the differences in in regulation country by country because some countries acknowledge natural immunity. If you want to travel to different parts of Europe, they'll you know you 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 can either test negative, you can either show your vaccine pass, or you can uh, prove that you have you've recovered from it. But other countries don't uh, acknowledge that at all. You have to have the vaccination regardless if you recovered yeah. from it, regardless of anything else, no health exceptions, which then, as you were saying, would actually kind of, I mean, that actually impairs if you've, if you've recovered from it naturally, then the vaccine, if I'm understanding correctly, that does a disservice to what, you've already, what your body has already done naturally. Why is there such inconsistency? Well, let me tell you, Diana, this has nothing to do anymore with science, unfortunately, because there is much more. There is much more. And that is that natural immunity. So natural immunity, there are two components. The innate immunity, mm -hmm. if that doesn't suffice, you still have the naturally acquired immunity. Right. Both of these immune defense mechanisms, and here comes the point, are capable of eliminating the virus. 
So you may get a virus, but your innate immune system, for example, will eliminate it. You, you may be, be shedding the virus for a few days, maybe, but the virus will get eliminated. So this is inducing, in other words, sterilizing immunity. So you, you hear what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So that is the part that will enable the population to finally acquire herd immunity. And also, if we are now vaccinating large parts of our population, like the children, the children is our only hope that we will, it's, it's a reservoir to eliminate the virus, and it is an important source for generating herd immunity. If we vaccinate them, per definition, the vaccines cannot prevent transmission, they cannot prevent infection, per definition, they cannot contribute to herd immunity. We are losing that capacity as well. So what I'm saying here is that by doing this, by vaccinating the children, for example, we are not only doing something which is harmful to their individual health, but it is also harmful to public health, you know, because we can only get rid of the pandemic. This is textbook knowledge. Right. Really, this, this is, uh, we can only get rid of the pandemic when we get to herd immunity. Because herd immunity will make sure that the vulnerable people, those you know who have underlying diseases, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that the probability that they get infected is so low, that is the definition of herd immunity, that they don't need to be fearful that they're going to be infected, right? Right. So that right. is that is herd, so they are automatically protected thanks to the herd immunity of the population. So there is many aspects of this that are completely, completely uh, neglected. And to your point, yes, indeed, the natural immunity, especially the innate immunity, has been completely, completely ignored. Talking with Dr. Garrett Vandenbosch. Doctor, are, are we nearing, because of the mildness of Omicron, and apparently it seems like everyone has contracted it over the past couple of weeks, and I read a story coming uh, uh, just earlier today where WHO was saying that uh, it looks like at least half of Europe is probably going to get it within the next two months. Are we approaching or are we near the level of herd immunity now with this? Well, well, uh, then uh, there would be, this is our last window of opportunity to get to herd immunity. But, but my fear is, and from what I'm hearing, it is already coming, that you are now going to continue this mass vaccination with an updated vaccine, which of course will be based on the Omicron. And if we do this, we will lose this last opportunity. Listen, we had we had an opportunity to achieve herd immunity at the beginning of, of the pandemic. We messed it up. We started the mass vaccination and that opportunity was gone. We have now a second opportunity. Why is this? I will explain you. Because the virus, the Omicron, has now become resistant to the vaccinal antibodies. So the vaccinal antibodies can no longer bind to the virus. So because of that, the innate antibodies can now bind again. And that is what's probably also explaining the mildness of the Omicron. And I told you the innate antibodies, etc., innate immunity can eliminate the virus, can contribute to herd immunity. So this is a huge second opportunity that we have. We will pay a price. What is the price that we will pay? Well, we, the, the virus has become more infectious. The Omicron is more infectious, obviously, than the original Wuhan strain. And because of that higher level of infectiousness, we will probably have 
more disease, more cases of disease, not necessarily. I don't expect severe disease. I don't expect uh, a relative increase in, in debt, but we will have more disease, more mild disease, more moderate disease, etc. But that is not dramatic, as I told you, because people can recover from that. Right. And also, we should not forget that that is, of course, not my field of expertise. When people start to get more severely ill, we can treat them, for God's sake. Yeah, no, it's a, and that's a, a, yeah. a great point, Doc, Dr. Geert van den Bosch, who we so, you need to go read his Substack. And um, last quick thing for you, we really appreciate what you do. And you bring up a really good point about how this used to be at least the focus on immunity. And then somehow that focus changed to vaccinations, which we're not, I'm not anti-vax and neither are you, yeah. but no, you're for responsible not. and what is going, responsible approaches and what is actually going to deliver herd immunity. It can't just be about vaccinations. What delivers that herd immunity? And you've done such a great job explaining that. Of course, we would always love to have you back. We're going to make sure that we, we share your work far and wide as well. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.